Hello, and welcome to H-Law's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing A Sea of Debt, Law and Economic Life in the Western Indian Ocean, 1780-1950, with Fahad Ahmad Bashara, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Professor Bashara specializes in the economic and legal history of the Indian Ocean and Islamic world. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Shaban. I appreciate it. Big fan. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying the law and economic life of the Indian Ocean and Islamic world? Yeah, sure. So I, I did my PhD at Duke University, and uh, I came in knowing that I wanted to study the Indian Ocean world, but not really having a good sense of, of what I wanted to study in the Indian Ocean. I had a sense that I wanted to study trade, but not much more. And it was under the, the initial guidance of Ed Ballison at Duke University, the, the historian of American business and law, that I really became much more steeped in the literature on legal history generally. Ed ran a legal history seminar that was very much global in its aspirations. And so we got to read work from around the world. And I was struck by the work of, particularly, of course, Lauren Benton, but also anthropologists of law, Sally Mary and others, and began to, to think of what a, a history of law in the Indian Ocean might look like. But it was really when I went out to do the research that I became confronted with law as uh, I was sort of traveling around different port cities in the Indian Ocean and uh, collecting material for what I thought was going to be a dissertation on trade networks. Uh, and I thought I was going to find letters between different merchants. I quickly came to realize that uh, very few people held on to letters and most people held on to contracts and debt deeds. Uh, and so I was confronted with different uh, different forms of, of legal writing. And over the course of my travels and reflecting on the materials that I'd seen, a picture of law, uh, sort of the intersections of uh, law and economic life in the Indian Ocean came to, came to sort of reveal itself to me. And the Islamic world, of course, I mean, it's, it's an extension of the Indian Ocean. It's a, it's a bigger category to think about the Indian Ocean through. These are different forms of Islamicate, you might say, uh, forms of Islamicate contracting around the Indian Ocean. I say Islamicate because it's not really totally Islamic. It's stuff that, you know, these are materials that sit at the boundaries of a, a range of different legal cultures, uh, but the predominant lexicon for contracting in the area uh, seemed to be uh, drawn from Islamic law, broadly speaking, Islamic jurisprudence, rather. Can you go into some detail about your assertion that in the Indian Ocean, law was both everywhere and nowhere? The idea that law is everywhere in the Indian Ocean is a product of exactly what I was just talking about, and that in one's travels around the Indian Ocean and in different archives, um, you get you become confronted with different sorts of legal material, contracts, court cases, different forms of legal writing by jurists, or uh, high-level legal texts, but also responses to everyday legal questions, uh, sort of fatwa literature, and other phenomenon that, or other, other forms of writing that we might not imagine to be strictly legal. Letters between merchants, for example, are not strictly legal. 
Um, but they do reference different forms of commercial association and they reference different forms of law in their, in their writings to one another. Even letters between rulers in the Indian Ocean and their governors, for example, they don't talk about law directly, um, but through the language of governance, of administration, uh, legal matters creep up all the time. So in a sense, language of the law is in all of the material in the Indian Ocean, the one encounters around the Indian Ocean. But very few people are actually talking about law directly. And so you have to uh, engage in, in a little bit of sort of imagination and mental gymnastics to, to have it fit within the law box. Or my approach is to sort of come up with a more capacious definition of, of what law is and how law articulates in different forms. It articulates itself in different forms of writing and uh, and the different forms of communication. Stuff that, I mean, legal historians around the country have, have already done in American legal history and British legal history and you know, European legal history where these, these discussions are already highly developed. And so drawing inspiration from those those writers to uh, to be able to expand our definition of law so as to include all of these different forms of writing as well. How does your work reimagine connectivity in the Indian Ocean region? So connectivity in the Indian Ocean region, uh, insofar as anybody speaks directly of connectivity, which, I mean, the, the standard for Indian Ocean history is always to begin with a description of the monsoon wind system, which allows for a sort of patterned movement around the around the region, you know, different ships move with uh, with the winds according to seasonal winds. They carry with them people, and with the people come goods and ideas and and things of that nature. And that's been our our the sort of the foundation for imagining connectivity in the Indian Ocean region. On top of that, uh, one might layer the different merchant networks that emerge with the circulation of people and goods. So we're thinking of a very sort of Rodelian layered narrative of the past. What I suggest in my book is that we might think of law as forming sort of a connective tissue. Because if we're going to think about trade networks and we're going to think about empire, there's a way in which these movements around the Indian Ocean are highly structured, or these exchanges around the Indian Ocean are highly structured, not just because of natural phenomena like the monsoons, but because people around the Indian Ocean converge on a shared lexicon of contracting, a shared sort of contractual culture, a shared way of doing things, of doing business, uh, much like the uh, Geniza merchants of the medieval Mediterranean that, that Goitin and others uh, have written about, um, that there was a, a business culture, in a sense, to draw on the language that Ed Ballison liked so much, a business culture in the Indian Ocean. And these were... Uh, these were reflected in different forms of contracts. And one might then use those to talk about connections around the Indian Ocean, that law was integral to Indian Ocean trade. Goods don't just pick themselves up and move across the ocean. They have to pass through a series of different hands. And according to shared expectations, uh, shared units of measurement, shared ontologies, and all these things. And so the, these, this, this world of law has to come into being alongside alongside Indian Ocean trade. Material life doesn't exist on its own. There has to be a, a sort of a legal framework for it to, to cohere as well. How does your work add to the historiography by moving beyond trust networks to intersections with external legal institutions? 
So the idea of trust networks as a paradigm for thinking about the history of trade is deeply established, entrenched even uh, in the literature. No matter where one looks, there's trust, trust amongst business communities. Of course, the, the idea of trust amongst business communities is under closer scrutiny recently uh, by, by a number of different scholars. But that scrutiny has not been extended, largely speaking, to the Indian Ocean world or to the sort of Islamic world, the Asian world of contracting, sort of monsoon Asia more broadly. There's an assumption, there's always been an assumption that this was a social world, uh, that family connections, blood ties, but also friendship ties, uh, informal connections mattered a great deal to, to trade and that people did business on the basis of trust. And the studies that have come out on trade networks in the Indian Ocean and that have invoked this idea of trust have almost all been, we might call them internal, uh, internal studies, in that we, we see the dynamics of trust and kinship and, and all these different dynamics taking place within a particular merchant network, within a coherent group of people that have uh, related to one another in, in different ways usually members of a particular ethnic group or a religious group. And the assumption is that, that trust, trust inheres in a more uh, effective way amongst co-religionists or members of, of the, the same ethnic group. But what it doesn't tell us about, though, are transactions between different groups, what the historian Philip Curtin, you know, 35 years ago, called cross-cultural trade, trade between different networks. And when you look at transactions around the Indian Ocean, there are as many transactions between different groups as there are within different groups. So we might imagine trade as taking place, goods as being channeled through uh, networks of a sort of homogenous, homogenous people, sort of homogenous networks, in that goods travel through Indian networks or you know, particular groups of Indian merchants. Uh, groups or goods travel through Arab networks, uh, you know, even subsets of Arab networks. But what happens when Trade takes place between Arabs and Indians, for example, or Arabs and Swahili merchants. Uh, how do we make sense of it then? The discourse on trust thus far hasn't gotten us to how we might how we might conceptualize those sorts of exchanges. And law then becomes much more important to understanding these things. And not to say, as in the sort of the classic formulation, there's either trust or there is law, in that people who don't trust one another. A sort of uh, appeal to legal institutions, uh, but rather that people drew on legal institutions, people drew on law in its most capacious sense, the language of the law, to structure relationships with one another that might be grounded in repeated interactions, in, in sort of vague ideas of trust, but are still anchored in matrices of rights and obligations that are mutually understood as well. So it's not as though we all trust one another and we're all sort of, uh, we all have the sort of warm and fuzzy notion of trust and exchange and kinship, but rather we have very clear expectations of one another uh, and uh, somewhat legalistic expectations of one another, even if we trust one another. In what way was Sir John Gray's narrative of the encounter between the Busa-Idi Sultanate and the Muzrai governor of Mombasa emblematic of the oceanic turn in the histories of Arabia and Africa. So to 
sort of unpack that question, uh, we really have to sort of step back and give a, give the listeners a sense of who it is that we're talking about here. So the Busa'idi Sultanate is a sultanate that emerges in what is today uh, Oman in southeastern Arabia. And over the course of the 1700s and 1800s comes to rule uh, much of East Africa. Now the Saidis are not uh, the the first dynasty from South Arabia to establish themselves in East Africa. They're in a sense heirs to an empire that was crafted by the Arabi dynasty, which came before them. And the Mazruri governors of Mombasa, which is a port city in East Africa, were governors on behalf of the Arabis. Now, when the Arabis fell to dynastic struggle within the family in a civil war in Oman in the 1700s, and the Busa'idis emerged as leaders, as sultans of Oman, or as of sultans of Muscat, rather, and then over the course of decades, extending their power along the coast of East Africa. The remnants of Ya'arubi rule in East Africa, particularly Mizruri governors, were not interested in recognizing Busa'idi uh, authority. No, they saw it as a moment where they could assert some sort of autonomy, or at least were sort of uninterested in pledging allegiance to a new sultan. And so when I talk about this encounter between them, and this encounter is narrated by Sir John Gray, who was the chief justice of Zanzibar in the mid-20th century, who has interests in, in the history of East Africa and writes histories of East Africa. This encounter between the, the Busa'idis and the Mazruris in Mombasa, when I say it's emblematic of the oceanic turn of histories of uh, Africa and Arabia, it's to say that we often conceptualize the histories of sort of monsoon Asia prior to the arrival of Europeans as being about these sort of petty disputes between uh, different rulers, different uh, rulers and their governors, different sultans, different sort of port cities vying for power in the Indian Ocean world. And the, the encounter itself takes place in the remnants of a Portuguese fort in Mombasa. The, the narrator describes, and of course, John Gray is, is drawing on an earlier narrative of that moment. Uh, the, the narrator describes the, the Busa'idis arriving on ships with the monsoon. And so in a sense, it evokes this, this sort of, this moment where the histories of Arabia and Africa are bound together because of this monsoon wind system, um, but also because of shared political histories that are sometimes bridged together by uh, sultanates that expand their authority along both coasts, uh, but other times sort of fragments into petty disputes between governors and their sultans. This is a recurring trope, not just in Indian Ocean history, but in Islamic history more broadly, as anybody familiar with the history of sort of Muslim empires in the Mediterranean and the Muslim heartland would be able to tell you. Why did political aspirants from Southeast Arabia envision East Africa as a place where they could reinvent themselves as actors of consequence? It's a good question, uh, and I don't know that I have a solid answer to it. The, insofar as I can tell, in Southeast Arabia, there are lots of different groups. In Southeast Arabia, when we talk about Southeast Arabia, we're talking about the country that's today, Oman, and there are lots of different groups that are vying for control of Oman, of Southeast Arabia, especially of access to the coast at different points in Omani history. And when one group rises to the helm, as was the case with the, the Yarubis, 
who rose to power by essentially by kicking the Portuguese out of southeastern Arabia in the 1600s. Uh, so in their case, or in the case of the Busaidis, who rose from the ashes of the Arabi dynasty, in a sense, after the, the whole country fell to, uh, to civil war. Individuals or groups that are, that are right to trying to establish political authority in those situations can't actually rely on local support in, in any, in any sort of solid or sustained sort of way. The allegiances of different groups shift all the time. By retreating to East Africa, by building up power bases in East Africa, they're able to really consolidate authority, generate resources. East Africa was much richer than Southeast Arabia in terms of the, the natural resources it had to offer and the sort of the, the trade, the regional trade that it attracted. And so those who wanted to to make a meaningful attempt at political power in Southeast Arabia would often go to East Africa to amass support, uh, military support, social support, political support, economic resources to be able to, to support a, a, an attempt at rule in Southeastern Arabia. In a sense, what I'm suggesting is that the political history of Southeast Arabia and East Africa are deeply intertwined with one another from at least the medieval period onward. How did contracts between Indian merchant moneylenders and their debtors bind the interior of East Africa and South Arabia to markets in India and abroad? So to, to answer that, we have to get a better sense of who these Indian merchants are and what their role is in this Indian Ocean world. Indian merchants could be found in virtually every port in the Western Indian Ocean from the early modern period onwards. Indian merchants by virtue of their contacts in the subcontinent, were able to, to sort of access a number of different resources on credit that were of high demand around the Western Indian Ocean. Rice, different foodstuffs, but then also textiles. There's textiles, there's a high demand for textiles in East Africa and Arabia, and Indian merchants have privileged access to these textiles by virtue of their contacts. And when they fan out into these different ports in the Indian Ocean, these Indian merchants are lending out money, uh, but lending out also giving out food and textiles on credit to different consumers there in return for different commodities that they deal with, the deal in back home. So in East Africa, the earliest commodities, the earliest goods that Indian merchants are interested in is, of course, ivory. So... Indian merchants would loan out textiles and food and money to aspiring uh, ivory caravan leaders who would then go into the interior of East Africa, trade some of these goods for ivory or, you know, use guns to force people into selling them ivory, bring that ivory back to the coast and uh, sort of sell them or give the, get, hand them over to their Indian creditors who would then forward them to their partners in Western India uh, where there would then that ivory would then either be sort of repackaged and sold, re-exported to Europe, or processed locally into a range of different uh, range of different goods. So we have that example of ivory. And if we think of South Arabia, dates are a highly sought-after commodity in the Persian Gulf, pearls, and one one can think of a range of different uh, commodities as well in southwestern Arabia, for example, coffee. Uh, and so through the act of sort of lending. These Indian merchants bind their debtors into an obligation to, to deliver 
Indian merchants, I should say, are not generally interested in some form of repayment or are interested in sort of strict repayment on the loans that they're giving out. They're not lending out just money so that they could get back just money, or they're not giving out goods on credit so that they could be paid back in money. They're generally uninterested in money. What they're interested in are securing the supplies of the goods that they deal in back home. Um, well, home is home is a different, ca- difficult category to sort of wrap one's mind around in this world, but back in India, I should say. And so, in a sense, the it's the through the the money lending activities, the credit, the credit activities that Indian merchants engage in uh, around the Indian Ocean, that the Indian Ocean begins to sort of cohere as a market for credit, a financial market more generally, and that we see the circulation of goods in the Indian Ocean, goods in the Indian Ocean don't move along to sort of strictly sort of market forces. Goods move along chains of obligation that linked the interior of East Africa, the interior of Arabia, the pearl banks of the Persian Gulf, to markets, uh, marketplaces, I should say, or to pearl, or to merchant offices in Bombay, in Kutch, in, in different uh, sort of metropolitan areas of uh, Western India. Could you talk about the way Juris formed a juridical society that bridged Arabia and East Africa well into the 20th century? Sure. So as all of this trade is going on and all of this empire making is going on in the Western Indian Ocean, there's a lot of law as well. I mean, this is the central concern of the book itself is is law. One way in which we see law intervening in this world is, of course, through the the different forms of contracts and deeds that are uh, that are generated at this moment of these loans between Indian merchants and their debtors around the Western Indian Ocean, but for that to even take place, there has to be there has to have been established a, what I what I call a sort of juridical society uh, around the Indian Ocean, a society of jurists, but also of judges and scribes as well, and these are individuals who are tasked or take out the administration of law uh, around the region. And the administration of law around the region is not, in a sense, uh, you know, running a tribunal and, uh, and hashing things out between litigants. It could mean that sometimes. But most of the time, what it meant is they're writing different forms of law books. They're giving opinions on different legal matters and in response to questions from, from various questioners around the region, from merchants, but from also other individuals. And what makes them a society, uh, what gives why the reason I characterize them as a society is that these are not isolated individuals. This isn't a sort of atomized group of jurists and judges and scribes. These are people who study with one another. They, they've studied around one another. They've, you know, a number of them studied with similar teachers. They had sort of study circles in different places and would fan out into different parts of the Indian Ocean according to the impulses of the sultan who might ask them to move or according to sort of the demands for a judge or a scribe in a particular place. But beyond that, or in addition to that, these are people who are reading each other's work, the texts that they're producing. These are people who are writing to one another, uh, asking opinions of one another. So we see a circulation of different forms of communication between them, but also different legal texts that they're clearly all reading and commenting on. And in doing so, we, in, in sort of looking at this, what we see is a more 
coordinated effort at fashioning a world of law around the Indian Ocean that is not just incidental uh, or coincidental that it happened, but it's, it's a very sort of intentional uh, activity that uh, the jurists around the region are, are engaging in. What did law, and especially Islamic law, encompass to jurists like Nasser bin Abi Naban? What matrices of rights did he see in the Indian Ocean? So Nasser bin Abi Naban is one of these jurists that I was just talking about, the ones who sort of studied in different circles. His father was one of the most famous jurists of Oman in the 1700s, uh, Jaid bin Khamis, called Abi Naban. And Nasr bin Abi Naban studied with his father, of course, studied with other jurists. And Nasr bin Abi Naban, in the sort of initial expansion into East Africa by the Busaidi sultans, uh, he was asked to accompany the sultan with him to Zanzibar, and he ended up staying there and riding from there and, well, effectively dying there after a very long and productive life. And I use the example of Nasr ibn Nabhan in the sort of very beginning of the book. I use him as a, as a character for thinking about law in the Indian Ocean and to think of law in the Indian Ocean, not as law with a capital L, as in sort of law books or law codes that are being passed down from uh, sort of from the top, but rather to think of law in the Indian Ocean as different forms of contracts, different matrices of rights and obligations that uh, take take the shape of different contracts around the Indian Ocean, but also to think of Nasr bin Abi Naban as seeing natural phenomena around him, trees, plant plantations and this is before the plantation era but farms around the indian ocean as as being expressions of particular uh legal ontologies so when we think of a farm or we think of a tree as an object of sale when does a tree become an object of sale when does the fruit on the tree become a separate object of sale uh, these are questions that jurists like nasr bin abin abhan would have thought about and in his travels around the indian ocean from Southeast Arabia to East Africa, he would have encountered many different instances of of these sorts of phenomena, trade-related phenomena, but also natural phenomena that he would have thought of in legal terms. And for him, Islamic law would have encompassed all of it. Islamic law is not uh, a, a very strictly defined code of law uh, or very narrowly defined code of law. It, it Within the ambit of Islamic law, within the scope of the Islamic law, is virtually everything. Everything was potentially the subject of law or legal discussions, of jurisprudence. And so thinking about trees and the value that they produce, thinking about taxation, thinking about empire, thinking about coastlines and rights to coastlines and rights to the sea and to sea lanes, thinking about wind systems and the sort of patterned activity that comes along with wind systems, the coming and going of different ships and what sorts of contracts that brings up with it. This is all within the scope of what Nasr bin Abi Nabhan would have thought of as the law in the Indian Ocean. What methods did you use to find the voices of the migrants who traversed the Indian Ocean? I should say that they, I, when I first started off the project, like I said in the sort of my beginning comments, I, I hoped to find letters that people had written to one another. This is a, the classic material of the history of trade is the sort of letters between different merchants, the, you know, Goitin's Geniza letters or Francesca Trivolato's uh, 
letters of the Jewish merchants of Italy and, uh, you know, Sebu Aslanian's Armenian merchant letters. This is the stuff that inspired me uh, when I went out into the Indian Ocean, uh, around the Indian Ocean, and was hoping to, to write the history that I did. Um, but as it turns out, people didn't keep these sorts of materials, didn't keep letters. And if, or if they did, uh, there were only very limited pockets of these things. What what people kept were dead deeds. What we see in the archive at a different at different uh, levels are these debt contracts. And so to to sort of insofar as one can uncover the voices of migrants who traveled around the Indian Ocean, it's difficult with with legal documents like contracts because the voice of the migrant, the voice of the the debtor, or even the creditor is mediated, of course, by the scribe who's who's writing up the document. But we see imprints of their journeys. We see the moment in which they took on a loan in the hopes that they might be able to make a name for themselves. We see the moment in which they, you know, they put up or they mortgaged family property so that they could get a little bit of money for, sometimes they tell us why they need the money in the document. It's to pay off a loan or it's to pay off the price of a house that they're buying or, or to, you know, purchase, to purchase slaves or whatever it is. But oftentimes they don't tell us exactly what it's for. But we do get a sense of the properties that they're drawing on, the money that they're asking for. And when we're able to sort of string these together, a few of these together into something that looks sort of like a life story, a little bit more comes to light. So we have that sort of material, but then we also have the fatwa literature. The fatwa is a sort of genre of Islamic legal writing in which questions are posed to a jurist, anonymous questions are posed to a jurist, and the jurist responds with with his legal opinion. It's a non-binding legal opinion, but an authoritative one, uh, regardless of whether or not it's binding. And in the questions that people are asking, we get somewhat of a sense of the voices of the people who are engaging in economic activity around the Indian Ocean. We get uh, a sense of what they name different things, name different objects, name different contracts, uh, different practices, but also what their concerns are, what their sort of moral concerns are about engaging in particular forms of trade or what their legal concerns are. So it's not impossible to find the voices of of merchants, planters, migrants around the Indian Ocean, however mediated they might be. They're there in different genres of legal writing, but we have to contend with the fact that we're not seeing them totally unfiltered the way we would in a letter that was written by somebody for the purposes of consumption by the person who the letter was addressed to, right? These are not that. These are documents that are drawn up for expressly legal purposes. What can we learn by following the Waraka across the Indian Ocean? So the Waraka is what I term sort of the dead deed, and it's a sort of generic term. It just literally just means paper. And there are different forms of Waraka. Some of them involve just debts. Others involve combinations of debts and pledges of property, other kinds of promises as well. And Waraka is a term that sort of captures all of it. And I like it because it's a sort of malleable term. It can be, Waraka can be lots of different things. And by following it across the Indian Ocean, we get a sense of um, how markets for credit emerge in different places, but also uh, how people tied in property and obligation to these emerging credit markets. So how somebody who is traveling from Southeast Arabia to East Africa or from Western India to East Africa, East Africa is, is where I think about lots of these sort of 
processes from. It's my platform for thinking about it. East Africa to a lesser extent, South Arabia to a much lesser extent, India. And uh, we see how somebody, people traveling from these different places will draw on property in their hometown to finance ventures in, in a new continent or in a new world for them, really. And so we can see the ways in which property markets in South Arabia and East Africa are bound up in one another, property and credit markets. But then when we follow these even more, depending on where we see them, we see them in different legal forums. We see warqas being presented alongside questions to jurists and fatwas. We see warqas in, in, in Qadi courts, in sort of judge court, Muslim judge courts. We see warqas emerge in British consular courts, especially by the sort of the later end of the 1800s, as British consular courts become increasingly popular as venues for thrashing out different legal disputes. You see warqas turn up there. And in seeing them in these different places, we get a sense of the sort of continuities, the legal continuities that one sees between India, Arabia, and East Africa, but also these moments of rupture in which people are making different sorts of claims about these sorts of documents and uh, trying to draw, are trying to draw in different legal systems and different legal, legal actors to, into their, their sort of disputes uh, surrounding it. And so in the Waraka, in a sense, in following the Waraka, we, we can see the whole sort of legal history of the Indian Ocean, the legal and economic history, at least, or, or at least one particularly dense thread that ties the Indian Ocean, the Western Indian Ocean together. And the Eastern Indian Ocean is a, a different story. Could you tell us a bit about the legal and economic clashes that occurred as the world of Omani East African commerce confronted a burgeoning British Indian Empire? Because a number of these, the overwhelming majority of these moneylenders um, that we're talking about in South Arabia and East Africa during the 1700s and 1800s are uh, Indians in that they are of South Asian origin. They might have been in Oman or East Africa for several generations by that point, but they are of Indian origin. As British jurisdiction in India uh, is established on a firmer footing, this sort of British jurisdiction in India is uh, expands over the course of of the 1800s. Certainly, the sort of the second half of the 1800s. What we see uh, is a more concerted effort in South Arabia and East Africa to to try to sort of classify these Indian merchants as British Indian merchants, as subject to the jurisdiction of British India. And um, British Indian, or British consuls, I should say, British consuls around the Western Indian Ocean are interested in doing this for a variety of different purposes. But the, the main thrust of their efforts is to suppress the slave trade. And, and the reasoning is that well, if these Indian merchants are financiers, are the principal financiers here, and we have jurisdiction over them, then we have our our hands on the purse strings of the slave trade around the Indian Ocean, so to speak. Uh, we can cut off finance to the Indian Ocean, or we can finance to the slave trade in the Indian Ocean, or at least we can attempt to sort of curtail it by establishing jurisdiction over these these Indian merchants. Now, these Indian merchants have their own reasons for for being amenable to uh, British jurisdiction or not. Um, but over the course of the sort of mid to late 1800s in East Africa and South Arabia, what we see is that 
a number of these Indian merchants are moving back and forth between different jurisdictions, the Amani jurisdiction, so jurisdiction of the Amani Sultan and the jurisdiction of the British Consul, and are trying to appeal to different authorities at different times. And this brings, sort of lays bare before us this, this clash of different legal systems or a moment in which and sort of British Indian legal system has to confront has to confront a, a sort of an Indian Ocean world of, of contracting. And there are various junctures for Indian merchants. British jurisdiction looks a lot more appealing because the British are more keen on helping them, uh, you know, collect their debts or whatever it is at that point in time. And as they bring their disputes to British courts, as they bring the warakas that they've sort of uh, written out their loans on, to British courts, then we see uh, this moment in which these two different worlds of contracting, the the one that had been established before, and this Anglo-Indian world of law come into contact with one another. Could you tell us about the consular clerks and the way they served as intermediaries between Muslim categories of contracting and an expanding Anglo-Indian empire? Sure. Uh, So in East Africa especially, but we see it in South Arabia as well, The bulk of the legal work that was done in the consulate, at least, the day-to-day work, was by consular clerks. And these clerks were almost exclusively Parsis. And, you know, anybody who's familiar with the work of uh, Mitra Sharafi, Mitra Sharafi's excellent work on law law and colonialism in South Asia, uh, knows that Parsis enter the the legal profession at sort of an astonishing rate over the course of the 1800s in India. And so it's unsurprising to somebody who's familiar with her work uh, that we see Parsi consular clerks around the Indian Ocean, Parsis acting in different legal capacities. Now, what are these Parsis doing? Well, the moment in which we most clearly see them acting in a legal capacity is when Indian merchants or other merchants bring their warakas, their debt deeds and other contracts to the British consular court to be registered either because there's an upcoming court case, a pending court case, and they want to register their, their deeds now, or there's a sense that, well, we should register them in the court just so there's a public record of it, so that in case anything were to happen in the future, there'd be a record of this transaction in the consular court. And over time, the consuls say that well, you know, they're not going to enforce any property rights claims based on documentation that is not registered. So registration is, a, uh, is mandatory. When these documents are brought to the consular court, they're copied into a consular registry. And there, there's an Arabic scribe uh, who works for the consulate who does the work of copying it into the consular registry, of course. But then these consular clerks, these Parsi clerks, then annotate these documents. And when they annotate them, they give us a sense of who the people are. The, the annotation is very brief description of who the, the, the deed involves, but then what sort of deed, what sort of contract it is. And this is the moment in which we see the earliest attempt at sort of translating between two different contractual worlds from a sort of an Islamic world of contracting, this world of waraqas and jurists and judges and things of that nature, to an Anglo-Indian sort of uh, legal epistemology. So what are these contracts in Anglo-Indian legal terms it's these Parsi clerks that are the first people to do this, and they they sort of annotate them, and the, that then provides the fodder for 
what later becomes sort of lawyers uh, or clashes between lawyers, judges, and litigants in the consular courtroom. What were British judges and Indian lawyers' takes on Islamic law and how it would interact with modern capitalism? So when, when a case arrived in the consular court, uh, there were a number of different people who had uh, different stakes in the outcomes of, the, of, of a particular dispute. So when a waraqa comes in and somebody says, well, this is an Arabic rahin, a pledge of land, and somebody else says, no, it's a mortgage of property. Well, the legal implications of one or the other are are very different. And so people make different claims on what these documents can do and what these documents are meant to be. And from that, over the course of, you know, we're, we're not talking about a couple of dozen cases here. Over the course of decades, we're talking about thousands of cases about debt and about contracts that take place in the, in the consular court. And the, the archives in Zanzibar are, I mean, it's a really very rich, largely untapped treasure trove of court cases, legal material. Over the course of, of these, these cases, people then extrapolate to larger claims about what Islamic law is, how one reads Islamic law, and what Islamic law's role is in a sort of modernizing economy. And as the British administration in East Africa becomes more entrenched, as protectorates are established, as you know, flat-out colonies are established in different parts of East Africa, the stakes become much higher and these conversations become much more visible as we move upwards, or as we scale up in terms of the genres of legal writing from uh, court cases, to case files, uh, and material in consular registries to the law reports um, where people are trying to together bigger narratives about empire and law and, and economic history. The sense is that among some some judges uh, is that Islamic law as an amorphous body of legal rulings is is highly unfit for the demands of modern capitalism, which demands certainty in property rights rather than contingency, demands sort of very clear delineations of right and and obligation, whereas in a lot of Islamic jurisprudence, a lot of it is situational. A lot of it depends on the personhood who, of the person of the individual that's involved or the individuals that are involved. And rulings can shift depending on the time and the place in the society. There's a sense that this is just not enough. Uh, and similar to what we see in India, in India, in South Asia, the story that a lot of people are, and I should say that. This project would have been impossible without the highly established and highly developed literature on the legal history of South Asia. Mitra Sharafi, Rohit Day, Julia Stevens, Elizabeth Skolti, Rita Birla, Rita Birla rather, and others gone through great lengths uh, to show us how these processes take place in, in South Asia, to say nothing of Bernard Cohen and, and the people that came before them. But the same way what we see in, in South Asia, there, where there was a in South Asia, rather, there was a, a uh, push towards codification of Islamic law uh, into manuals that of what they then called Anglo-Mohammedan law. We don't see that in East Africa or South Arabia. Rather, what we see is a reliance on Muslim legal texts, not in translation, sometimes in translation, other times not in translation, but a preference for writing, a preference for legal codes, a preference for manuals that one can flip to a particular page and find a positive legal ruling uh, rather than the sort of situational 
jurisprudence and situational legal rulings that we would have seen earlier on. And then, of course, there are all sorts of questions surrounding, well, uh, you know, mortgages and interest and their place in Islamic law and how we tailor those to meet the needs of a changing commercial society. And these are all discourses that are thrashed out in, in the courtroom. Could you tell us about the depression of the 1930s and the impact it had on the Indian Ocean's legal and economic world? The 1930s is a, I mean, obviously it's a sort of global economic depression. And the global economic depression reverberates into the Indian Ocean in, in a way that such as the, the products that, that people are producing in the Indian Ocean, the pearls, the dates, the cloves, the ivory, the stuff just doesn't command the same price on the market as it used to, and people are having more, more and more difficult time repaying the loans or even servicing the loans that they've taken from Indian merchants. And over time, as, as we have a series of defaults, hundreds, thousands of defaults in consecutive years, there is a, a threat of foreclosure on the properties that have been mortgaged alongside these loans. Properties that had always been uh, hypothecated in one way or another alongside these loans, but that Indian merchants, the moneylenders, never really took possession of because the loan was always sort of re-extended and renewed and the game is played over again. Well, when the money is not coming, when the sources of credit are drying up, when the uh, sources of uh, when, when the sources of profit are also drying up, people then turn to the properties themselves and try to foreclose on them. And in South Arabia and in East Africa, British officials who are now running essentially sort of administering protectorates in around East Africa and South Arabia and the Persian Gulf as well, are faced with a real threat that the people that they are administering the protectorate on behalf of the local locals, the Arabs or whoever it is, might be dispossessed of all of their property. And well, how can you how can you have a protectorate that in in which the people whom you're administering on behalf of have no property anymore, have no claims to sort of political community when all of the the property are in the hands of your own sort of British Indian subjects. It creates this moment of political crisis, potentially. And so um, this sets into motion a series of reforms that take place around the Western Indian Ocean where British officials, alongside uh, sort of local partners, move to regulate money lending activities effectively limit the scope of money lending activities force money lenders to go through all sorts of registration procedures and also to register their loans write down their loans in different forms of documentation the older world of warakas of sort of islamic debt deeds is wiped out by the 1930s by the end of the 1930s and it's replaced with loan documentation which is not altogether dissimilar from the sort of loan documentation we would get at a bank today. And so my reading of that is that this is a sort of the unraveling of the world of obligation that had characterized Indian Ocean trade for the preceding 200 years. And it's a moment in which the state injects itself, state bureaucracy injects itself, the sort of the different links in the chains of obligation, the sort of the credit market, the interstices between creditors and their debtors. And it becomes a much more bureaucratized form of credit. The disputes surrounding the law look very different because the documentation is very different. The notions of rights and obligation are very different. 
And so by 1950 or so, which is when I end the book, and 1950 is just a sort of a random date to, to pick to end it. I could have ended it later, I could have ended it earlier. But right around then is where we see that this world simply just does not look like it used to 50 years earlier or 100 years earlier. To conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now. Well, I'm, I'm working on a couple of different things, but the principal project that I'm working on now is still grounded in Indian Ocean history, but looks at ships in the Indian Ocean, actually dows, local trading ships, these sort of lithium sailed uh, trading ships around the Indian Ocean in the late 19th and early 20th century, and asks many of the same questions about sort of debt, but also about credit, labor, uh, law, international law. But thinking about it from the deck of an Indian Ocean Dow, from the perspective of these mobile sort of maritime communities, rather than the book, which looked a lot at land and plantations and things of that nature. So what does what do these processes look like from the sea? And in doing so, it's forced me to, to engage in a very different set of reading. So it's not the same old thing over again. There are some similar concerns, of course. One never stops becoming or being a legal historian or still becoming a legal historian in a sense. But it's forced me to think about questions of scale in writing of history and narratives of world history. So in a sense, this, this second project or more in the sort of world history camp than it is in the legal history camp. And it's sort of moving back and forth between different port cities and trying to write sort of connected histories of trade, of sort of small sultanates of law, of contests over the sea itself, but also contests over shorelines, over pearl banks, and over sort of the rights and obligations of different mariners. And so there's there are several different sort of episodes that I'm looking at, and I'm not entirely sure what the final product will be. I can only see it in sort of snapshots at this moment in time, and we'll see what comes of it. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing that, and I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a good time.